Hello, and thank you for tuning in to EK on the Go, where we bring people together who create, preserve, and celebrate places in the Puget Sound. I'm Edward Krigsman, and today we will breathe life into forgotten classic homes in the Puget Sound area. Buckle up as we take you on a shamanistic and eye-opening ride into home renovation. This episode will be a blast, so don't go away. My guests today are the adventurous Heidi Shore and Paul Damon, a.k.a. House Healers, who retrieve the soul of exceptional and historically significant houses and rejuvenate tired homes, oftentimes in a state of near abandonment. We will walk through their house healing journey, which requires intensive research, deep listening, and meticulous reconstruction as they restore the integrity of a house and its surroundings. Today, we're going to look at the identity and souls of fatigued houses, the recognition of architecturally significant homes, and how healing houses can help us heal ourselves. And stick around. If you're interested in seeing Heidi and Paul's latest house healing adventure in person, we'll tell you how you can view it and buy it at the end of the show. So let's jump right in. Heidi, Paul, welcome. Thank Hi, you Edward. for having us. <laughs> so what does house healers mean? Um, what does it mean to you? It means that. Retrieving, you know, listening, finding the soul of a house, and once hearing it, actually doing what it says. Paul? Inside for us, it's as deep as you might even imagine it to be of healing. Also from just the construction aspect of cleaning it all up, clearing it up. And it's kind of interesting how the name came about. How did it come about? We were shopping around at different places, houses, and we told some people what we kind of do because we didn't have a name or anything at that time. A couple people were like, that sounds like your house healers or something. Huh. Yeah. And a couple people said that within like a week and we're like, you know, I, I guess maybe that's kind of what we do. And that sounds kind of cool. Well, cool. It seems like you do a lot of listening. So I'm sure we'll talk about that today, <laughs> you know, listening to people, places and things. And that's an, a good, good example of that. So how is healing a house then different than renovating? Probably in the sense of the healing is really more personal and within more like art would be versus just manufacturing. You know, that's the main difference for us in, in healing it. It's really part of us is in the house. So it sounds like creating versus processing? The healing is, for me, is arriving again at a whole. So we find things that are often very disjointed or disturb the energy of the place or the architecture or the materials, they're damaged. And the healing part is that we actually bring it back to wholeness and even better than it was when we found it. We're in a boom real estate market and a lot of business out there is house flipping, which always <laughs> makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> so oftentimes when I walk into a house that's been, you know, quote, flipped, it actually looks more disjointed than it did probably when the people found it, just because everything's so incongruous and done obviously just purely for profit and margin. So how do you feel about that? Well, it's not as profitable to be a house healer as to be a flipper. <laughs> <laughs> but it is very profitable for who we are. You know, it feels much better to do this process. And I sleep really well at night about what we're doing. And at the end, we have an amazing piece of art that we know that feeling is instilled in it for whoever buys it and who's going to live there and the people that are going to visit the place. And it's like beholding a piece of art that continues to inspire and evoke and speak to someone. So it sounds like it also like whole, like it's whole versus disjointed. Yeah. You know, you brought the pieces together. You know, for some people, the flipping is, it works really well for them, but it's not for everybody. Just like our houses are not for everybody. 
most people will like them, but they're not all necessarily going to be buyers. But, you know, there's a place for the flipping and we understand that it's just not who we are. And we're here more for self-expression and that more than just to make a buck. So is there a house in Seattle that prompted your journey as house sealers? When I encountered what we now call Heron House, that house just spoke. It was an instant. This is it. You know, I'd been looking for a house to do with Paul and it just had it had everything. It had the architecture, the feeling, the derelictness, the brokenness, the beauty, the natural beauty, the environmental. We had an architect on the show, Kevin Eckert. When he looks at a building, he sees building code. He just sees the building as a reflection <laughs> of the code. And that's yeah, you know yeah. criticism in some ways of the way in which the code gets sort of reified into buildings, unfortunately. So when you look at a place, you mention nature and what is it that you see? I've come to understand that not everybody sees the way I do, but I already see it as it will be. I see a filament of something that will already arise, and I already see it whole. I already see it healed. And I guess that's my thing as a healer, is that when I look, I see all the possibilities, and I see lines, I see shapes, I see colors come into it. But I actually do, when I think about Heron House, I just looked at that house and I was like, oh, this is how this can look. It arises in me much the same way that my paintings or my other art kind of works that way for me. You are a published author, German translator, a healer, faculty at Bestier in holistic healing. And so could you tell us about the book that was just published? It's the largest book in the world, I believe, and it's by Taschen Publishers. Amazing company. In Germany. And it is based on the Tibetan wall murals in the Lakong in Lhasa, Tibet. Okay. And it costs $10,000 to buy the book. Yeah. What does a $10,000 book get you? It's very big. And I think it's probably three by five. Don't quote me. And it's all of these beautiful, detailed pictures from this temple, which show the practices that have happened for millennia in Tibet and for reaching enlightenment. And it then has the descriptions of all of the deities or all of the practices, all of the yogic postures are very detailed. So it will be published in a smaller format at some point. And then system dynamics is also part of your background. Mm -hmm. So what is system dynamics and how does that infuse your life and work now? It's funny because I never knew what that even was. It's that I see the whole and then I break things down. I'm not a detail person and build up. I see and perceive the whole and I perceive the way things are working within a whole and if they're not working within a whole and I'm able to analyze that. So for me, that got applied to nonprofits and boards, board work and directors, directorship of various organizations. What's translating systems analysis to the work that you're doing now? That it's the whole package, you know, that there's a place that the house sits, there's the, the space around it. In the case of this house that we're working on now, there's a creek, there's an ecosystem all around us. The heron is our everyday guest at this point. And the plants, knowing that they belong there, they're part of it, and that the house as an entire had things that needed balancing, things that were just off and just had to address some of it the other day again. You know, just looking at, well, why are we lost in details right now? Why is the detail hanging up? And then I go back out to the big picture, to the system, to where we are, to where the house is, to what the house wants, what it's doing, and I can then hear it and address it in a very different way. And then, Paul, your background is you've been in construction for many years. 
basically construction forever, yeah. like yeah. 37 years. Yeah. And then you started in the U.S. Navy and yep. did Boeing. So. Yeah. And uh, Heidi was my first real foray into more of the artistic expression of okay. it. And I'd say in the question that you had asked her about what we see in a house, and keep in mind when she sees a house and she sees these things, it isn't like we do every one of them and it isn't, you know, like, whoa, we know what exactly looks like when it's done. It's just a starting process. For me, I would say I don't see the house. I feel the house. If I do see it, I'm seeing it through my senses rather than my eyes. It's does the house have the potential of what we are capable of doing. That's that's probably the biggest thing because we've been through a lot of houses. In a little bit, we'll jump into your current project. Paul, I know like it was about a year ago, you and your son drove from Seattle to, was it to Chile, to South America? Well, it's the southernmost point in the world that you can ride a vehicle to. What's that called? Ushuaia. Five months of on the road, motorcycles, off-road, incredible journey with my son. And it's been a year plus now that we've been back. But I was thinking about it the other day, and the biggest takeaway was not so much the trip per se, because I'm a motorcycle guy, but that I was able to do it with my son, with one of my kids, was probably the greatest thing. How did the two of you start working together? Her friend, Sarah, is a friend of mine, and she put Heidi in touch with me because Heidi had a project that her and her husband were doing in Ballard and needed somebody to just do the work. I showed up, and Heidi and I just got along super well. We got personal real quick, so Heidi and I go pretty deep. We're in a construction boom, so every contractor that I talk with, you cannot even get the light of day. You know, talk to me next year. You know, I'm so busy. So... But, Paul, you've chosen to focus in a very particular way with a particular partner. Yeah. Heidi helped one of my dreams come true outside of my, maybe my mom and dad, the only person who I felt really has trusted me to that depth to really take this risk. And we're both nutty enough to do it. And then where do you disagree? What are your major points of disagreement? Design. It's always yeah. design. We're pretty similar in our vision with stuff, but we do have some challenges. But we are pro- we, we know we have a process, just like Heidi has a process that's different than mine. And mm-hmm. we need to allow each other that process. But together we have a process too, so we clash a bit and then we sit back, we express, and we do bring other people in. You know, if we had our own way, we'd probably do something different and might not be marketable. (laughs) You know, we don't want to go too far out there, but we want to push it and we try to push it to where we're uncomfortable. What design styles or eras, where do you find inspiration in the world of design, architecture, history? It's interesting for me. It has come with really the modern, the mid-century and Northwest architecture because on a personal level, I'm very interested in old houses, 1900s and farmhouse style, but I've done a lot of that, a lot, a lot of that. And it doesn't lend itself to somehow as blank of a canvas for me. And the mid-century has just cool architectural features, just cool enough a lot of times that it allows a jumping, a springboard. And I think I could do anything and want to do everything. That's the interesting thing. I really am an artist. Mm -hmm. And I find myself in construction, not always very willingly. You know, I mean, this is just really hard work. And the artist in me would probably like to just do art a lot more. So I look at anything. I look at, you know, there's buildings downtown Seattle. I tried to figure out if I could get that, what was it, the Federal Reserve, that building. I tried to figure out a way to do that because Mm -hmm. I was looking at that and thinking, oh my God, wouldn't that be amazing to go in there and have all those vaults and go from there? And so I would say this is very different for both of us is that 
I just look at the canvas that is there or where I am in life obviously leads me, but I'm open for almost anything. And the exception is that turn of the century or craftsman bungalows don't lend themselves as much to what fancy or fantasy might allow. So a mid-century, and for our listeners don't know what that is, I would say from the 1950s, 60s, 70s, are more of a blank canvas than other eras, probably because of their simplicity. Well, they're a blank canvas, but they have often one or two really cool architectural features. And they have a lot of glass. They're indoor-outdoor. They're communing with the outdoors, which is really important for both of us in how we work. In that era, new materials were available, and so architects experimented with using those materials and yeah. in a way that was different than before. Heidi's got a mind that can kind of wander. But, you know, a lot of times she's like, are you just crazy? And then other times it's absolute brilliance. I'm probably too much into the trades to I just knock stuff out and that doesn't go together. But she'll bring up things and it's just great. One thing that I have noticed is that particularly with Heron House, that you're almost like curating, you're finding objects out in the world and then dragging them into mm -hmm. a home and then developing the architecture to some degree around these objects as if to display them or curate them. And it reminds me when I was a kid growing up in Tacoma, there was an old apartment building in the north end of Tacoma near Wrights Park. And it was built probably in the 20s. It had the brick buildings. It was an old neighborhood. And you walk across these sort of bridge-like sidewalks into the front doors. And in it were all these little, almost like reliquary where I think it was probably the owner who originally built or designed the building. And they were things from China, I believe, where there are vases and sculptures that he had stuck them into these little niches that were really part of the design and lit them in a really interesting mm -hmm. way. And it really pretty, it made a very strong impression on me. I always wondered about this building. It had almost seemed kind of glimmering, mystical place. Wondered about the story, why he did that. But it seems to me that that's an element of what you do is a curation of objects that you sort yeah. of drag home. Or, or fly home in the case of <laughs> screens from New Orleans. Okay. <laughs> Not just drag home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get a phone call. Yeah, Paul, these things are great. They're only like 180 bucks. I'm like, man, yeah, Heidi, I trust you. Go ahead, get them. And it's like $900 to get them here. Sure. But it's one of those things. There's a reason for it. It's like a collage. Gotta have it. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's like a collage in the sense of art, or how would you right. like tie that back into the sort of artistry? I don't know. Like, there's something about me that relates to my book, relates to who I am, relates to this house, as you're saying, these objects. I'm uh, deeply interested in lineage. And so there's a thing of being available to what presents itself and then connecting because it is connected. Like that's how my world works for me is these things start to connect themselves. I just have to be listening. I have to be paying attention. And no, not everything works out the way my rational mind might have thought at that time. But it does usually, if the feeling is there and my mind isn't overriding, it usually is part of what's presenting itself. There are pieces, and then it's a matter of putting the pieces together. For us, it's a new house. I mean, it's all basically about new construction, but sure. these items we put in there already have a story. You're walking into a house that may be brand new, but it, it has a story already, and with that story for us, what it what we think it does is it projects more like a home and a f sense of feeling rather than just this, oh, we got this sterile brand new house. Mm -hmm. To us, some of the pieces just, they're, you know, they're really loud to us. They, <laughs> you know, in the sense of not bright colors, but just they are really strike us deep. Or um, like red, red that kept coming through at Heron House. And we're both, we don't really... Oh particularly yeah. care for red and red kept coming through and we weren't listening really enough and a person came in wearing a red cape and she was looking at the bio on the wall of Alfred and she said oh red red and we both looked at each other like oh it was 
Alfred the whole time oh, okay. talking to us. You mean ab- Red is part of Alfred's first name? Yeah, and oh. Alfred wanted Red. Alfred was about the red. So I who mean, is Alfred? And let's go back into the specific property. And Alfred yeah. Simonson was the architect on Heron House, and he was part of the modern mid-century movement out of UW and okay. the whole school, the group that arose at that time. And he wasn't one of the more known architects, and he ended up, I think, working on a lot of grocery stores and mini-marts and things too. But bowling alleys. Bowling alleys, weird things, but he had some amazing residences. And we just took it further to finish it because we felt that the house wasn't, it had one awesome room and the rest of the house was semi all right. But we made the rest of the house like that one room yeah. to finish it off. You know, it's like taking an older home and making it relevant for today, the way that we live our lives, but yet keeping the same flavor of whatever it was back in the day or the house we're currently on, we're bringing all new flavor into the house, but we're taking what's there and you I mean, know, we giving make... it something more that's more congruent. What we would feel is with the property. The property is just like a wow. Like it's the house is worth the property, but the house was never congruent with the property. And we feel t- when we finish, it will be worthy you know. of the property. Right. Yeah. So the site and the setting is also very important. Yeah. With Heron House, then let's just sort of back up. How did you discover it? What did you see when you discover it? Who had lived there, and how did you learn about it? I was going out of town. And I saw it, a very bad photo. And it was a pink house. And it was had <laughs> metal bars on all the windows. And, and it, it had was been just, for sale for a long time. It had been for sale for over a year or something. It was a short sale. I saw the photo and I had that sense of, oh, this is it. And I saw the one photo of the interior that showed the fireplace. And I knew that inside must be amazing. And so I said, Paul, go, because I was on my way out of town. It was Christmas. And uh, he went and looked at it. And I went, we cut our trip short and I came back and looked at it. And it was just, that's it. Because for me, it was a yes. It. That was it. And when we went to buy that house on the final signing of that, it's, there were a couple issues. There was some risk involved with the house because of the way the sale was going. We were leaving ourselves a little bit vulnerable. And I looked at Heidi and I said, Heidi, if this is the house and you say yes, I'm in with you too because it was the house for me. And she said, yeah. So we were in, risk or not. And it was a challenge. And then what changes did you make to the house that were unexpected? Elevator doors. Probably everything. It all kind of happened as yeah. we went. The vaulting, the ceiling in the master bedroom and that was a really good find but the biggest risk was those when she told me about these elevator doors that she saw it's like are you crazy and then i saw them and it's like i think we're crazy she wanted one i said well let's get two of them they had two so we ended up buying both of them and from that point on we were game so I have a list of all the things you put in there. There was trim that was salvaged from a house on 18th Avenue East on Capitol Hill. There were steel service elevator doors from the Calhoun Hotel from 1900, now the Palladian Hotel. There was a kitchen bar that was harvested from a sequoia tree. Yeah. That was probably the most popular thing with everybody was that piece of wood. And none of those things, like when we say we had vision for the house ahead of time, we, we none of those were picked out. That all happened as it went. We went to go looking for wood in Carnation, and we find this redwood tree thing. We were looking for a redwood tree. We just found the slab and said, yeah, okay, let's do it. And that's how fast the decision gets made. And we just made the piece work. 
There was something from the McCarver Elementary School in Old Bathroom Vanity, a chandelier that came out of a house that was demolished on Bainbridge Island. Oh, those lights. Those were amazing. Those were actually in Canlis. There were bathroom vanities that were like that brutalist design. Oh, that was really awesome. That was a score. That was a score. We didn't know what it was. And when we got it, we thought it was so cool. We looked it up back thousands and realized, oh my gosh. <laughs> and we actually know that there's people actually replicating that hmm. now. Yeah. A potential buyer at Heron House, they've invited us back to their house that they ended up renovating and they actually semi-replicated that piece. So we inspired them, which was awesome. We love to share what we have with people. I mean, that's what we feel is part of what we do is not just to build something and sell it, but to share with as many people as possible. And that's probably part of Heidi and Mai's interest, even in this program, is if we can reach out to people that may want to be involved in some kind of way (laughs) to... um, you know, enjoy the process with us. And that's something we're looking at. We've had a couple people that we bring in to uh, share with them that process. That's been a theme with a lot of the guests here is that they really like to share what they do. They come from a sense of abundance and believe that a rising tide rises all ships and why not share? So one of the questions, something you just mentioned was that don't tear that down. And so you are an artist, you create things, but I also have the sense that you're a preservationist. Totally. And so (laughs) what is your overall feeling about sort of all the change in Seattle that's occurring as relates to sort of our environment that's been built and is changing and being rebuilt? Well, it breaks my heart. I am someone who loves and thrives on change. And I think on most days, I get up and think it's very awesome that Seattle has exploded or has been discovered because there is like the sculpture garden. Would we have the sculpture garden? Had that not happened? I don't think so. I mean, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of philanthropic time and investment in that. A lot of the places are gone that I loved or when I moved here, 1986, I moved here. Seattle was a little big city for me. And I loved the size. I loved that I could ride my bike all over. I loved that downtown was shut down on Sundays. I loved that I could bus everywhere and it was no big deal. I didn't have to have a car if I didn't want to use my car. But obviously traffic is the thing that it's become the scourge and it's making me a different person in Mm -hmm. Seattle, which I don't like about myself or about Seattle. I most days feel disoriented in Seattle. I don't know where, you know, even looking up, looking down, I don't know where I am really. And probably again, why the sculpture garden matters so much to me. It's very clear where I am. It's very clear I have an orientation on that beach, on the water, overlooking the water. Oddly, cemeteries are places that I really love in Seattle. Uh, Volunteer parks, cemetery. I like as a young troubled person would hang out there and it was peaceful and Volunteer Park was really peaceful. I'm afraid for artists. I, You know, I have a fear that we're not as funky and and all-encompassing and diverse as we used to be here. And I can attribute some of that to my age. I don't get out and do the same things I did when I was young. So I don't know. You know, I don't know. But I also, it's a feeling. I'm such a feeling person. There's a thrumming something that's happening that didn't used to be so strong. Paul, what do you think about change in Seattle? I've been here since 62. I was born in 60 in Chicago. My parents moved out here. My dad got a job with Boeing, lived on the east side, biggest building. 
I think on the West Coast at the time was the Smith Tower. Yeah. And even at that time, for a very long time, you know, the city's changed a lot, but the downtown, people didn't used to live downtown. Yeah. At least what my recollection is, you'd go downtown and work there or you go to the movies or do something like that. As a younger person, I didn't really come to Seattle much at all because I was so young. But as I got in high school, that type of thing, we'd come over here. But now, unfortunately, a lot of our older buildings have been torn down. A lot of them didn't look that great, but some of them did. But now you got a lot of big, tall buildings. A lot of people live in downtown, which I think gives more life to the city. You walk on the streets at night and there's people there. Didn't used to be that way. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the city's actually become more alive. I'm attracted to a place like South Park in Georgetown. Cool. And that's, yeah. I'm more the yeah. industrial kind of person. Okay. So at the beginning of every show, I always like to ask guests to think about a place, you know, maybe locally in Seattle that is special to them or it matters significantly. Is there, does anything, place come to mind, Heidi? Yeah, the Seattle Sculpture Garden comes to mind for me. I Why? spend a lot of time there. Because, again, it was a place that was, what, we had a railroad running through it. It was derelict waterfront that nobody wanted to go to. It's cut through by roads, and it was taken and assessed and made whole. It was really made whole into a beautiful space that you can still find these pockets of serenity. The beach now is extraordinary, and the upper views it really took it and made a place that was, I think, nobody cared about and into an amazing thing. Part of the history of Seattle is really disconnecting from the water, which is so sad, yeah. right? Historically, before yeah. the settlers came, it was waterfront. And then all the industry and businesses came in and the, the sculpture garden specifically connected to the water again. Yeah. And that beach is a secret gem. Every time I go there, there's not that many people there. Now everybody will be there. But <laughs> um, and it, it's uh, the water aspect is reclaimed. Paul? Mine is uh, a couple places, but they're all the same, essentially. It's some of the old movie theaters, like the Egyptian, the Harvard Exit, the Neptune. And then there's an old one that's no longer, but it's the Coliseum, where I think Banana Republic might be there today. Oh, yeah. Those were old movie house theaters. And what I liked about them was not just that they're movie theaters, but it's a place in the city for me when I was in probably after high school go there to see a movie and it was a different space it was just a feeling there that was really nice just like going to the egyptian it's just such a different place inside there and it's done well and you it evokes a feeling whereas you go into most buildings and you know it looks nice but to me there was no feeling in some of those places but these old movie houses really kind of made me feel like a different space so my father grew up in brooklyn new york and i've had so many stories he grew up in the born in the 40s and then went to the lowe's pitkin theater as a child and they had like this cyclorama of stars up in the sky and it was a moorish theme inside and he still talks this day you know about mm -hmm. that theater and how important it was as a kid some of those memories stick with you. I never would have thought I would have said this, actually, but in you bringing it up for us to look at, it's like, wow, that's, an, I don't know what I'd think of, but that came to mind. And that's like a, probably a 20-year-old memory. One of the things I always like to do is have, invite our guests to bring something in that, some object that they wanted to share. So what do you have here? So this is from Burma, Myanmar, and Cyclone Nagris went in right before I went to Myanmar and wiped out most of Burma and 138,000 people died. And not many people had been to Burma or Myanmar at the time. And I went out to a little village and there was a former glass 
factory. And it was just glass everywhere, like shards, fragments of glass everywhere. And this incredible old wizened lady came out and she started talking to us and she brought us in and gave us tea and the whole family came and they told us this had been a glass factory. It had been the biggest producing glass factory in Myanmar and that there's no more electricity. There's no way they were ever going to redo this. And I asked if I could take a piece of glass. And this was what would have been a goblet and, again, a fragment of something, but told a whole story. So let's talk about the current project. How did you find it? How did it need to be healed? Well, we found it after a lot of brutal looking and rejections and offers that went nowhere. The real estate market is brutal. The real estate market is brutal. And for someone in our position, it's even more brutal because we're looking to sell it to someone in the end. So it's not we already have a, a monetary loss in that regard versus someone who's looking for a home. And I have to say, it's hard for me being who I am, knowing that I'm competing against people who are looking for homes. So the whole process was incredibly brutal for me this time, this time in particular. We found it because it was on the market for a while and it was just a dog. So man. there's a pattern there. It was ugly and it was... Well, the outside wasn't, it was plain, but it was used as a group home. So the inside was all boxed up into a bunch of rooms so really disjointed you had to like essentially walk through a bathroom to get to the main part of the living area and that was all closed up the property was still there in the back but not probably used so i think that part had been neglected over time well and it was also the feeling was just i remember my mind my head really feeling like i had to bend when i went in this house to even make sense of how it was a house it was crazy. It was really crazy. That's why it didn't sell. Very disjointed. It needed healing badly. I think anybody that would have been a homeowner to buy it, they couldn't have the vision to see, like, what could we do? So what did you do then when you got in there and started working on it? Tore everything out, okay. except the chimney remains okay. and the slate floor at the entrance remains. So you kept the two elements. Why did you save them? And then what have you brought back in? I insisted on saving the fireplace. <laughs> and uh, I liked the rock stone and that just... I think kind of by default, but Heidi likes it as well. I think we both agree that that should be there. Even on the outside, the decks all will be redone torn off and remade. The whole landscaping, we went with kind of, we trucked in mature maples and that I salvaged from a construction site in Kirkland that was being torn down. So again, a lot of finding things that are going to be in the plant world, I do this as well. Plants that are going to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of an illness in one way. You know, and in the rock world. Illness too. in the, the sense that you are like committed to preserving and saving things. Yeah. And rocks. Like when I see that rocks are going to be just bulldozed and then buried on a site and they're beautiful rocks. So they rented a trailer and we put loads and loads and loads of huge boulders and brought them to the property. And, and mind you, we do most of this work ourselves. Understood. That moving those rocks was UI and a big giant winch. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a kind of a theme of you're really saving things preserving and protecting them. So mm -hmm. those are all very intangible. At the end of the day, when you have this kind of holistic vision mm -hmm. of healing a place, how does all of that effort, which is, sounds like exhausting and you're all doing it physically with your own hands, how does that then transmit into the finished experience of living there? I think by the fact that, and it's hard for me to know, it's easier for us to know this from the people that come and tell us and, and experience it at the end, is that there's a feeling that people have that this place is 
as it should be or that they feel very well in the place and that things, even though they're weird sometimes, make sense. It makes sense as a whole. And it, it just really feels, I think something that comes through in the end is somehow a sanctuary. I think our places are sanctuaries and a refuge. This might be very personal, but I visited your house, and mm -hmm. God, that was just such an amazing experience mm -hmm. to being where you live. Oh, my personal house? Yeah, your personal house is, I had the fortune to yeah. you know, go visit you there. It's really just yeah. remarkable on so many levels that that even exists and the feeling that you have when you go down that street. And I think that is who I am. For listeners, my residence is a 1912 farmhouse in Kirkland that was owned by people who also owned land and donated it to where Evergreen Hospital is now. So they were quite well known in the community and they wanted a, a house closer to the school for their children so they didn't have to walk such a long distance. So they built this farmhouse and they it was a hay fields farmhouse and then an orchard. And when I found it, it was again one of those things I'd been looking and looking and looking. And I saw it, the listing. I knew it was it. I drove down the driveway. I walked around it once. I said, this is it. Let's go. I don't even need to go in. We need it. This is the house. And it turned out that the woman was 96 years old and she was dying. She was in hospice. And her family, when they met us, said, you are the people. You're the people because you don't want to tear it down. And so it all happened quite quickly. And they took me to meet her. And I met her on her deathbed. She died four hours after I met her. And they told her all about me. They said, she's going to preserve your house, Helen, and she's going to take care of it. And she just squeezed my hand ever so lightly. Mm. So it's been this act of we got this amazing house on an amazing piece of property. Over years, it had been, some had been sold off, but it's a huge, huge lot for being where it is. And we set about renovating it. And it took a long time. We renovated in parts. We just finished last summer. Paul actually came and helped when we were doing the exterior of the what we call the old part. It's been added onto and put the porch back how it was supposed to be, how it was in the photos, because they gave me everything. We found a letter in the wall, an extortion letter in the wall when we were redoing it. An extortion letter? A young woman who wrote to a man and said, I know that you have another family and that you've been you know, having me on the side. And she wanted $500, which was in 19, I think it was in 1915. Wow. Huge amount of money. And uh, said, if you don't give it to me, I'm going to go to the papers. And what we found out is that the husband, this was Kirkland, the ferry went over to Seattle. He was working in Seattle during the weeks and he had a whole different life in Seattle. And we wondered why it ended up in the wall. We questioned long, did that mean that she did get the money or she didn't? And did the wife put this in the wall or the husband? And my reasoning was the husband would have burned it. The husband would have destroyed the letter. It was the wife, which leads me to, you asked about preservation, is that while we were renovating that house, my husband and brother-in-law 
called me the lady from the hysterical society. And every time there was some kind of, oh, this is a new layer of wallpaper that we just discovered, they would call in the lady from the hysterical society. Huh. And I have a box of all of that stuff. We took layers off the walls and preserved it all. Wow. So that, again, goes back to lineage and your kind of archaeology in a way when you're looking at houses yeah. and their stories or places. So again, I think what I see with what you've done, what I'm hearing is that you find places that have histories, you preserve and protect them, and then you enhance them by mm-hmm. making changes bring the story back to life. These pieces all have a story. Hopefully we can find the story of most of them. To us, I guess, even here in house and in this one, we're building the story. You know, there's things in the house that of where we got them, where they came from. When I look at art, I would like to talk to the artist and get some back story behind it rather than just a piece of art that looks nice. There's a lot of stuff that looks nice. There's a lot of houses that are cool. But can you tell me the story of the house? We know the answers to that in somebody would want to know those but many people don't but we know the story and that's i guess what we enjoy we've talked about sort of the outside the physical exterior the aesthetics architecture and so forth that you're dealing with when healing a home but what is healed for you internally or what is the process for you individually and together there's the house itself to heal the house i think we take on some of what was ever in the house i don't necessarily know what was in the house but it gets pretty wearing but it is rewarding the last house that we did i don't think i could pick up a hammer or even think about anything with a house for over a year. I was totally, I gave it my all and it took everything out of me. On the healing aspect of what I personally may be getting from it is that I found somebody that does trust me entirely to the length that she's willing to trust me with what I do as well as me with her for whatever reason has been one of the most healing things in my life. She didn't really mention that we have a like in those past lives that we have reconnected in this life form. That's really why that, we had to do what we're doing. You're that's he- that's healing of a past- for both of us that we have where we were both just surviving and helped each other survive in very unlikely circumstances being very different people and i mean there are so many levels to that this is obviously my very private life and orientation but suffice it to say that when i worked with him on that house where i first met him i was very clear that This was not someone I had just met. He said things and did things that had he just been a contractor that I had hired, I actually said to him, I don't know who you think you are, but you don't know me and... I don't even understand why you're possibly saying these kinds of things or going there. And there was clearly something in me that was like, this is this is your healing. You asked to be healed of something and this is what you're getting This is who you got it in the form of. And either you take it as it is or you walk away and you just blew it. You just walked away from what could possibly be your greatest healing in this life. And it amazes me all the time. I mean, Paul and I are very different people. There's just something that we both recognize that within this weird juxtaposition of our what we bring to the table and who we are, that we still have something to offer each other in this life and that we had to work out. So forgive me, but also to put this into context. So in like Tibetan Buddhism, reincarnation is part of the belief system. And I would say yes. And even before I ever knew what Buddhism was, I have no doubt that I have lived other lives. Ultimately, we don't know how long 
our process together is. We thought the first house, we were hoping we'd do a second one, but we didn't actually think we would. In fact, Heidi told me no. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then uh, we've been in this one, and we're not sure, you know, how things will go. But in the end, really, it's it's about Heidi and I. And we have a future together in the sense of just because of our connection, whether we deal with it in this way. On the deepest level, this partnership defies logic, defies finances, (laughs) but we're listening. And if there's more, there's more. If there's not, there's not. And it really doesn't matter. We've done this rodeo so many times. And it was really about shelter in that other place. It was shelter in the winter and we helped each other survive. I want to thank our guests for listening to our podcast. Um, If you'd like to support EK on the go, follow us on soundcloud.com forward slash EK group and share our podcasts far and wide. And those of you that turned in today are welcome to be part of a special event. If you'd like to see the House Healer's latest project in person, send an email to edwardk at ekreg with a subject line, House Healers, and we'll send you a special invitation once it's completed. Also, when you visit our website, you can take a look at photographs of the objects that Heidi Shore and Paul Damon brought in today, and you'll see photos of them as well. If you have questions or requests, send them along to edwardk at ekreg as well. And if there's a place that matters to you in the Seattle area and you'd like to tell us about it, please let us know. We'd love to hear. As always, thank you for tuning in. Join us next time to hear from others like Heidi and Paul about the places that matter most in Seattle.